Today's um, passage is going to have several references to the concept of foolishness. So I see, I think wisdom, the way we should understand wisdom, is that wisdom is to see as God sees, um, <clears throat> to understand as God understands. <clears throat> so the question would be, do we see ourselves? Do we see reality? Do we see um, others? Do we see the treasure value that God assigns to things and people the same way He does? If we do, that would be wise. Now, obviously, there is little wisdom in our mainstream culture right now, little enough. Um, the world, though, never sees as God sees. That's actually part of its role. The main role of the world's worldviews is to offer counter options to God's wisdom. There's always going to be God's wisdom, and then there's always going to be all the other counterfeits. Um, so don't be shocked when we see such foolishness around us in the news or wherever. That's to be predicted. Native Americans used to say that you don't go to the top of the hill for water, and you don't go to the white man for truth, because neither of them have those, right? That's what they would teach. I would add to you, don't go to the world for wisdom. If they happen to get lucky and they say something wise, well, that's fun. I mean, that's cool. That's not likely to happen very often, though. <clears throat> Even things founded in wisdom that we engage with in our lives, therapy, um, science, politics, they may have been founded, they may have wisdom in them, but they are foolish when they are put in place of God in our lives. So those things may make great for what they are, but they're terrible religions and they're even worse gods. Stay away from thinking of them as those things. Again, even wisdom in its wrong place becomes foolish. To the degree we do not know as God knows, to the degree we do not see as God sees, we are foolish. So all of us, of course, are fools in that sense. There's a, a level of humility that being a Christian should automatically assign to us. We've talked about this before. If I say, what are the chances you're wrong about something in your theology? Well, if your answer is anything other than 100%, you have a pride problem, not a theology problem. Of course, there's a 100% chance I'm wrong about something in my theology, okay? Well, now what is it? Well, if I knew, I would change it, right? So I, not only do I know there's got to be something wrong in my theology, but I don't even know what it is. That creates an instantaneous humility. Could it be this thing I'm wrong about? Well, I mean, I don't think so, but could be. That's one of the things that protects us from being fools rather than merely sometimes foolish. A fool is someone, we all can be foolish, but a fool is someone who consistently lives in the state of ignoring or denying the truth of how God sees something. They insist on investing there, on choosing that, on sticking there, which is why, by the way, we rarely know the difference between a fool and someone who's just being foolish. We can't often tell the difference, and I think that's part of why God warns us off making that judgment call, that we need to be very, very careful before we refer to someone as a fool because we then will face that same kind of judgment. That, that will be returned back to us. We can see that while foolishness is not the same thing as evil, we'll talk about that, foolishness is not the same thing as evil, there is a real link between the two. We're apparently being buzzed by the Air Force, I guess. That was a, I can see outside and see all of the kids going like, what? So it must be something pretty cool. I don't know what's going on out there, but you just missed it. Okay, there is a, um, <clears throat> foolishness is not the same thing as evil. There is a real link there. Good and evil are more than merely foolishness and wisdom. But we're going to see in this passage, which I'm about to read to you, how 
linked they are, how they interact dangerously. Very often the final step of evil begins with an early step of foolishness. So there's another concept as I read this passage I want you to be thinking about. So I want you to be looking for that theme, the foolish and wisdom theme, the fool and wisdom theme. And there's another concept, though, I want you to look at, and this will take us two weeks at least to unpack. Is this passage that I'm about to read, is it an account of loss? So I want you to note any losses if you're taking notes. Notice losses as we go through this passage. Or is this an account of provision? So as we go through it, I want you to be noting any signs of provision that you see, okay? Here we go. 1 Samuel chapter 25. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing the sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife Abigail, and the woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name, and thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace to your house, and peace to all that that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. Verse 9, when David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and they waited, and Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and water and my meat? that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who've come from I do not know where. <clears throat> so David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. And David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up to after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master. And he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as they went with us, as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us by night and by day, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house, and he's such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on the donkeys. And she said to her young men, go on before me, behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her and she met them. Now David said, surely in vain I have guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. 
But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord, whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. Now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. And evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause for grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause, or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you. You have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, Unless you had hurried and come to meet me truly by morning, there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she brought to him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice and have granted your petition. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. And in the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became a stone. About ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. And when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal, for he has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of the Lord, of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her, and she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michal, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galilee. We'll get there. The very words of God. 1 Samuel chapter 25 starts with this very simple um, uh, eulogy of Samuel. Now Samuel died. And all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him at his house at Ramah. I'm struck by after probably now hovering in between 50 and 60 years of ministry, Samuel has died. Do you remember way back a year ago when we looked at Hannah's prayer? In chapter 1, in verse 11, it says, And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. So yes, of course, we're all wondering how long his hair was at this point. Fair, fair question, probably impressive. But I think what we're supposed to stand out to us is that Samuel had finished the fight. He had run the race. He had faithfully handled what God had given him to do. How sad when we consider 
what more it could have been if not for Saul's faithlessness. One of the things we see over and over again in poor leadership is missed opportunities, is lost opportunities. There's a cost of bad leadership that is immediate and direct. There's also a cost that's invisible because of the opportunities that this leader never takes advantage of. I want you to stop and imagine for a minute. We've talked a little bit about this, but I want you to imagine Saul's kingdom. Imagine Saul's kingdom in which David is the commander of his armies, the man who kills tens of thousands when he wants to. If he had made David his right-hand man and Jonathan his main advisor over his palaces and his, and his leadership and his politics. So he had Jonathan, the second most powerful warrior in the country, under David's leadership in war, but over David in politics. And then he had had Samuel as his personal advisor, prophet, and priest. What could Saul have accomplished if Saul had put these three men in charge and then just sat and stayed out of it? He could have, who knows how much land he would have conquered, how many kingdoms would have been conquered by these three men under God's leadership, under Saul's guidance as king. And yet, note, what does Saul do? First, he drives Samuel into Samuel's hometown and leaves him there, landlocked, where only people he can impact directly is people who come to him in Ramah. What a huge failure. Samuel, they think, ruled for about 16 years before Saul became king, and for the last 40 years of his life, under Saul's leadership, at least half, maybe more of that, Saul and Samuel were divided. What a huge, massive, missed opportunity that represents. How sad. It's intriguing that, that when we see um, uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian, referred to, this, to, to the death of Samuel as not like the death of another man, but as that in which all were concerned. So if you die and you have a funeral and a bunch of your friends show up, well, who shows up at Samuel's funeral? All of Israel, because he impacted all of their lives. What a powerful testimony. One, it's not uncommon to see people refer to Samuel as the greatest man of God since Moses. What would have been like for Saul to have the greatest man of God since Moses as his personal advisor? And instead he drove him away. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man of Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing the sheep in Carmel. The name of the man was Nabal and the name of his wife Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. Now, in case you're trying to follow biblical geography, which I encourage if you can do that in your head yet, um, this is not the famous Carmel. This is not where Elijah faced the prophets of Baal. That's up in northern uh, Israel. This is, a part of, this is a city in southern Israel in the wilderness and near Paran. It's nearer Egypt. So on top of everything else, what you've got to imagine is he, this man has 4,000 animals. And where is he tending these 4,000 animals? Near the border of the deserts of the south, the border of Egypt, and the border of southern Israel. Not a safe place. You've got, you've got ro roving and, and uh, pillaging, sometimes nomads on one part. You've got the Philistines just north of you. You've got the Egyptians just to this side of you. This is not a good place to be having 4,000 animals wandering around in the wilderness. So what a big deal. This is, we're going to talk about what the, the, the job that David and his men have been doing for him is very significant. First, let's reference Abigail. Abigail is described um, this way, discerning and beautiful. Only two other women in the entire Hebrew scripture are described this way, Rachel and Esther. 
This is an ultimate compliment for a woman in the Hebrew language, the way she is described here. She is an extraordinary woman, clearly. And her name means her father's joy. Now, one of the things you've got to keep in mind is that people's names change during their lifetime in the Hebrew world, especially in this Hebrew. We see it over and over again. Was this the name she was given at birth and she's been that way the whole time? Very possibly. But also her, or her birth name may have been different and at some point her father changed her name to say, you are my joy. And you can imagine in an era when, um, when someone like Abigail would not have had, she wouldn't have chosen her husband. Her family would have chosen her husband for her. And you can imagine her dad who loves her and she is his joy, his pride and joy. And he says, I've found this wealthy man to take care of you. He can take care of you. And man, he honeymoons super well. He doesn't know that at the time. Man, he seems to be a great guy. How often is this the case? We talked about that with the abuse cycle last week under talking about the way Saul is engaging with David. But he seems to be such a great guy. Probably that's the case. Everyone loves him. I don't know why his mother called him fool, but because that's what Nabal means, by the way. Nabal means fool. So either this poor guy's lived his whole life with the name fool, we'll talk about Caleb in a minute, or maybe somewhere along the way his name got changed. Maybe Abigail's the one who changed it, right? So at some point, she, they think this is going to be great, and maybe we're going to see in a, in, by the, at the end of this little section here, we're going to see how much disrespect by now he had inspired in the people around him. So it says he was a Calebite. Aside from describing him as harsh and badly behaved, um, it describes him as a Calebite. Now, why is that? And we, we, honestly, we don't know exactly. Caleb, the Caleb he's referring to, he is a descendant of the Caleb. The Caleb back when, when they sent spies into the land and only Joshua and Caleb had faith that they could take it. Caleb who years, who 40 years later, after 40 years of, of traveling in the wilderness and after several years of fighting for other people said, I want my hill country now. And so he says, I want the Judean hill country. I'm going to go fight in it. I'm 80 years old. It is where the giants live in their fortified cities. And they're like, all right, Caleb, 80-year-old man with just your family. No one's going to go help you go do that. By the way, to this day, that is still the property that is owned by the Jewish people. Um, is that countryside. He absolutely wiped and chased the giants, the Canaanite giants, out of that area and did so forever. Caleb is someone we're supposed to admire. So what's, why is he saying like, why, why in this passage does it say, oh yeah, that Nabal guy, he was a, that, this, this idiot was a Calebite. Well, I think it's one of two options. One is, and Caleb is turning over in his grave. Like Caleb would be horrified to learn that this man is his descendant. He's lucky Caleb's dead. Because Caleb would not tolerate this kind of thing. That's an option. Another is, Caleb was a violent man. Caleb was a killer, and he was a powerful warrior. And though he was faithful, what would it be like if you had that same violent killing streak in the hands of a fool? Man, that's what makes masculine power dangerous. It isn't that masculinity is toxic. It's that masculine power in the hands of a mere man is dangerous. Because you take that kind of power and you put it in the hands of a fool and we're going to destroy people around us. That's what toxic is not masculinity. It's foolishness. Foolishness is toxic. It's dangerous. It's unhealthy. It's, it's all that kind of stuff. But it's also one other little piece of this is that the word, the name Caleb, the name Caleb means dog. Now, I love the idea that Caleb himself was not troubled by that. He strikes me as that kind of a guy, doesn't he? That either is like, yeah, sure, call me dog. That's fine. Or maybe it's even like, you got a problem with that? And you'll call me dog again in my face. 
Like, I don't know which one Caleb was, more of a like, but I don't see him being troubled by the fact that his name meant dog, which is typically an insult. I see Caleb embracing that. Yeah, sure, whatever. Here's what's wild. Dogs, of course, it's typically an insult in the Jewish way of thinking, which makes sense. You know, around here we have these beautiful dogs that are well-bred and often sometimes trained, and they're, they're, they're well-kept, and they go to the vet, and, and they're washed, and we spend gobs of money um, doing their hair and all that kind of stuff, right? But if you've ever traveled around the world, especially to like a third-world nation, you'll learn there's another side of dogs. Not only can dogs be faithful and loyal and and tenacious and lovable, but dogs can be filthy and disgusting and gross. Um, They can be defensive. They can be pathetic. They can be terrible and sickly. They can be short-sighted and reactive. Like this is, that's also true about dogs. And so it seems like Nabal has the negative traits of dogs, not the positive ones. So Nabal is living out as a dog. He's got the bad ones. He is a hard man. Now, this is intriguing to me. Um, I've always always thought this is fascinating. There's there's a type of, and this is common here in the South, especially in Texas, that you have a dad or a granddad or an uncle that you would you describe him that way. You're like, well, he was he was a hard man. And what you usually mean is, in one sense, okay, he didn't suffer fools lightly, right? But in another sense, what you mean is, he just told it the way it was. He just spoke his mind. He just said the truth, and you had to deal with it. I actually had a client one time tell me, like, I just, I just tell people the way it is. That's, that's not my problem. That's just my cross to bear. And I was like, no, it's everybody else's cross to bear. <laughs> it might be time for you to grow past, I don't know, three. Maybe to mature past age three when you learn that speaking the truth is half of the equation of, of maturity. Speaking the truth in love is the full equation that we're taught in Ephesians chapter 4. We should learn to speak the truth in love. People who just speak their minds like, well, well, we now all know what's on your mind. Thank you so much for sharing that. It, it is not a healthy thing. People who just speak their mind tactlessly or foolishly, well, join Nabal because that's him. That's who we're talking about. This is immature and it is foolish to not care how your words affect other people. Now, you're supposed to be asking at this point as you're reading through the story, I mean, okay, fine, there's a guy from Carmel who's kind of a, sounds like kind of a jerk. So, right? What does that have to do with David? Well, verse 4, David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sends 10 young men, and David gives the young men instructions on what they're supposed to do. They're going to go to find this guy at the time of his shearing his sheep. I'm not going to read all this again. We just did. But here's what you need to hear. Everyone agrees that David did everything right in this section. The way David handles this, he just sends 10. Why just 10? That's a big deal. He has 600 men. He just sends 10. I think it's a little bit like... like um, Gandalf sending the dwarves just a few at a time to go see Bjorn. It's Bjorn, right? The, the bear guy. Not the spoiler alert, um, but the bear guy. This, for the nerds in the room, like you, you connect with that. Like it's, he doesn't want to overwhelm him. Like I don't want to suddenly like, hey, here's 400 of us. Uh, you got anything? Like it's going to feel like we've declared war on you. But if I just send 10 young men and they come and they talk with you and they present themselves to me, hey, we come in the name of David, the son of Jesse, blah, blah, blah. Like they, they're going to do that and they show up. He is non-threatening, he is gentle, he is respectful, and he is worthy in the way that he presents himself to Nabal. So keep in mind, we just talked about this part of the world where they are is not a safe area, and this man has 4,000 animals, and he started the season with 4,000 animals. 
And he's ending the season with 4,000 animals. This has probably never happened in Nabal's business career. In that part of the world, he starts with 4,000 and ends up with 2,500 and has to grow them back every year probably, back towards 4,000, and it happens again and again and again. But this year, because of David's men, he lost nothing. He didn't lose a a single servant. He didn't lose any men. He didn't lose any animals. This is amazing. How much wealth is represented here? We'll see next week how much wealth this represents. So when David young men came, they came and told all this to Nabal in the name of David, and they waited, and Nabal answered David's servants, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are so many servants these days breaking away from their masters. Now, whether you catch it fully or not, this is, this is fantastically rude. Like, this is over-the-top rude. This would be over-the-top rude in the South. Here we are, because we're kind of the second or maybe third most hospitable culture in the world. The Middle East is first. You don't do this there. This is absolutely unacceptable. He is absolute in his dismissal. And here's the question that, that, that uh, uh, scholars ask. Is it possible Nabal doesn't know who David is? Is that really what's happening here? Is it possible that that, that Nabal's like, I've never heard of this David guy. I don't know what you're talking about. Now, if if that's true, one, that's that's fantastic. (laughs) I mean, the number one song being sung on all the charts is about David killing his tens of thousands, right? Like, there's no way, I stole that from David Guzik, there's no way, like, how would, how would, is Nabal really this ignorant? By the way, one of, you can do this for fun later. Take this passage about Nabal, and then go back and, and look up Ruth chapter 2, and what you'll discover is that Nabal is presented to us very purposely as the anti-Boaz. He's the anti-Boaz. As much respect and deference, and you know, I, I can't wait to meet Boaz. I mean, this guy was a stud. He did nothing wrong. There's nothing, uh, in the entire story of Boaz, there's nothing to disrespect about him. Only honorable things. Nabal is the anti-version of that. You want to respect Nabal? The author of Samuel is going to give you no hooks to hang your hat on. Nothing. There's nothing to respect about him. And the stories are even told in such a way, I think, to intentionally do that. He's the anti-Boaz. Is it truly possible that he is saying, I know nothing about this situation. I've never heard of David. I mean, he, they didn't reference, it doesn't say they referenced him as the son of Jesse, but it does say they came in his name. But there's another little hint here because he says there are lots of servants going away from their masters these days, which is a jab maybe at the fact that David is no longer under Saul. Again, it's meant to be insulting. But again, let's, let's talk about foolish. I know nothing about this situation, so I'm going to leap to insulting and inhospitable. That's my default. How foolish is that? How many of us have seen a movie where the old man is sitting at the restaurant or the bar minding his own business, and a bunch of young punks come in and start messing with him, right? They know nothing about this old man, so their thought is to be rude, mean, inhospitable, and jerks. We all know what's going to happen, right? It's our favorite scene in the movie. You're like, dude, that's Denzel Washington. He's in a movie. He, you're about to get torn up by him. This is going to be bad. It's going to good. This is not going to go well for you. Don't mess with the old man at the bar by himself. Leave it alone. Like, and the, the issue is there. That's based on the fact that they are totally ignorant. I know nothing about this old man, so I'm going to choose violence, aggression, inhospitality, and rudeness. Well, we love that moment when they get their comeuppance, don't we? 
It's like our favorite moment in every movie when that happens. We love that. Is it possible that Nabal is that foolish? I know nothing about this situation, so I'm going to default to rudeness, inhospitality, inhospitality insults. Is that possible? <laughs> what a fool. The only thing that would be worse is if he does know who David is, and so he's rude and aggressive and inhospitable and insulting. If you don't do know who David is, you're like, you know what I think would be a good decision here would be to pick a fight with David. David who killed Goliath. David who is famous for killing tens of thousands. I'm sure that will go super well. Like The only thing that would be worse to being ignorant and being rude is to not be ignorant and be rude in this situation. What could he possibly be thinking? Paul, Paul our executive pastor, not Paul the apostle, pointed out, <laughs> again, what a great opportunity is being missed here by Nabal. Nabal is representing like he's another Saul here. Hey, Nabal, David, no, 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 the David, the one who killed Goliath, the one who freed us from the Philistines, the one who's famous for killing us tens of thousands, he wants to partner with you in business and all you got to do is give his people a little bit of food, and he'll protect, your th you protect all your stuff. He'll protect your interests. And Nabal's response is not to go, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. It's not enough that he's not uh, smart enough to be afraid of David. It's that he's not smart enough even to know this is someone I should be partnering with. This guy has all this opportunity to, I mean, what a huge missed opportunity. I had never even considered it from that way. Nabal's too foolish to even invest in his own interests. I think he knows who David is. And I think that's why it's so insulting for him to say, yeah, 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 there's a lot of runaway slaves these days. Ooh. This man who's not even his own lord, not his own commander. In fact, he, if he does know this, listen to what he should know. 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 2, we looked at just a few chapters ago. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him and he became a commander over them and there were with him about 400 men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of these cutthroats, despondent people, a lot of people who are servants and slaves who are now in debt, desperate men, and they're leaving their masters. And by the way, they're all with David now. So you're going to pick a fight with all of them. That's your strategy here. How tactless even in the midst of his own arrogance, he is as insulting as he possibly could be. This has got to be what Jesus is thinking when he references how hard it is for a rich man to enter heaven. Look at what he says in Luke chapter 18. And this is after he's had the conversation with the, one, the person we call the rich young ruler. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter through the kingdom of heaven enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, well, then who can be saved? And he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. So what is it about being rich that makes it hard for us to enter the kingdom of God? It's not the money. I mean, money is irrelevant. That's not the issue. In fact, at this time, money wasn't even the big deal. It was calories. Because I, I would, this wealth has been measured in calories throughout almost all of human history until just the last couple hundred years. And, and, and we are, by the way, all of us super wealthy. I can tell by looking at us that when it comes to calorie wealth, most of us are doing pretty good, right? We're about to have a little, little festival that we have here in America in about, in about six weeks where millions upon millions of children are going to go door to door, and we're all going to go to the store, and we're going to buy hundreds of millions of calories and empty calories, and then we're going to give them 
to these little children, many of whom are obese. We, we have so much wealth in our country. All of us fall in. I know that relative, we have relative levels of financial wealth for sure. But very few of us ever wonder where we're going to eat next. How many of us have ever had to actually pray, give us today my daily bread? Most of us have never had to do that. I know where today's bread's coming from. Are you kidding? My pantry's, I've got enough moths in my pantry to feed me for a month, right? Like this is, we've got, we've got no problems when it comes to that kind of stuff. And therein is the danger. Therein is the danger that we would say, see, I, I, don't, I need God just that much less than poor people do. I need God that much less. I don't have to pray for my daily bread. Some people do. I can see why they need to do that. Me, I've got that covered. I've got enough money. I've got enough retirement. I've got enough 401k. I've got enough ammo. I've got enough food. I've got enough freedom. And I'm wealthy with these things in such a way that I don't need God nearly as much as the people who don't have those things. And therein is what causes us to miss the kingdom of God. That we think, oh, some of these things I've got sorted. I've already got them figured it out. Our propensity to consider others beneath us, or at least behind us, because of our wealth. Our wealth gives us some kind of advantage, maybe even superiority. We need God just a little less because, after all, we have money. We live in a culture so wealthy that our homeless people and our pets have obesity problems. What kind of a culture do you live in from a wealth perspective when your homeless people have obesity problems? There's never been a culture like this in all of the history of mankind when it comes to wealth. Careful that that doesn't turn us into a camel who would never even bother to try to. Why can't a camel go through the eye of a needle? Well, it's physically impossible. And why would the camel do it? He's fine, right? Our, pros- our propensity to consider others beneath us, that is the danger. Others behind us. Nabal was rich, okay, fine, but he had a poverty-stricken mindset. I'm going to confess I went into this chapter knowing that I hated Nabal. But what I've, what's discovered is I don't hate Nabal. It's even worse. I hold Nabal in contempt, which may be me, by the way, doing the same thing. I hold him in contempt. My, my instinct is to fail to consider him at all. He's a nothing. Samuel gives us nothing to respect about him, and my tendency is to think of him contemptuously. A man who, as Jesus notes, gains the world but loses his soul. I don't think Nabal actually gains the world or has any wealth at all in anything but the most shallow, pale, flaccid version of the concept of wealth. He has finances. He was unkind, inhospitable, intemperate, unteachable, unwise, bereft, and unsung. Although when you consider here we are 3,000 years later, still talking about what a fool he is. Be careful if you want to be remembered someday. There's two ways to be remembered. He's not the one you want. If you're rich, but you live in poverty of heart, poverty of wisdom, poverty of relationships, what is the point? What exactly are you getting for your wealth if the things that matter most to us, you can't get them that way? They say the person who does not read has no advantage over someone who cannot read. Think of that as applies to wealth. If you're investing in foolish things, you have no advantage over someone who has no wealth at all. Nabal is allegedly rich, but his wife does not respect him. What is the price for that? What are you going to pay for that? Well, yeah, I got lots of money. My wife, my, my wife mocks me behind my back. She thinks I'm despicable, but at least I got money. Why? Why bother? In my opinion, as a man, he is cold, flat, bankrupt, impoverished, indigent, broke. 
He lacks the respect of his servants. Even people dependent on him don't respect him. He lacks the respect of his neighbors. A man who fails with his spouse and his children and his friendships and considers himself wealthy is lying to himself. It reminds me of a song. So this, this song came up this week in, in talking with um, training some of the therapists. And so it, it came to me and the two things linked together. I don't know that any week but this week I would have connected these. Um, <clears throat> when I teach to men, sometimes I make use of a song called Father of Mine by Art Alexicus. He's also known as Everclear. And he wrote this song. It's an autobiographical song. Um, when he was a young man, he was abandoned by his father. And he wrote this song called Father of Mine. And I want to read it to you. Ready? Father of mine, tell me, where have you been? You know, I just closed my eyes and a whole world disappeared. Father of mine, take me back to the day, yeah, when, when I was still your golden boy back before you went away. I remember blue skies walking the block. I loved it when you held me high. I loved to hear you talk. You would take me to the movie. You would take me to the beach. You would take me to a place inside that's so hard to reach. Oh, Father of mine, tell me, where did you go? Yeah, you hold, had the whole world inside your hand, but you did not seem to know. Father of mine, tell me, what do you see when you look back at your wasted life and you don't see me? I was 10 years old doing all that I could. The song goes on and it gets more hurt and more, I would say, even rage-filled. It ends with this line, I will never be safe. I will never be sane. I will always be weird inside. I will always be lame. Now I'm a grown man with a child of my own, and I swear I'll never let her know all the pain that I've known. I remember seeing that the first time when it came out and thinking, I'm already sad for the fact that rage is not enough to hold a marriage together. Rage won't do it. And sure enough, Art left that wife later. Even after swearing, I'll never let my child know the kind of pain I did. And maybe he didn't abandon his kids. In fact, um, allegedly, just two years ago, he put his faith in Christ. I hope that's true. Um, something to heal the rage and hurt that he's had. But here's what struck me as I listened to that. I want you to think about Art's dad. Do you care whether he had money? I don't. The that he abandoned his child makes him poverty-stricken. I don't care if he's rich. Was his dad wealthy? Who cares? There's a poverty that people don't care enough about in our culture. The poverty of wisdom and the poverty of relationship and the poverty of purpose and the poverty of character. These are the poverties that we need to be worried about, that we need to be considering. Maybe we need to be thinking about trading in some of our finances for a little bit more of this other stuff, if that were possible. Nabal's attitude continues. Shall I take my bread and my, I love the my, my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I don't know where? The key word here is my. By the way, Nabal's going to learn at least three different ways that there's a lot of ways where his stuff can be taken from him before this chapter is over. Um, it's, it's as a, he continues, they return to David with Nabal's insulting and offensive response. So what did David do? Well, did David then go write a psalm? No. Did David call together Abimelech, the priest, and ask God, like, let's get out that Urim and Thummim and see what I should do next? No. It turns out Nabal's folly is contagious. Verse 13, David says to his men, every man strapped on his sword, and every man of them strapped on their sword, and David strapped on his sword. This is that moment that we all love, and you know, in young guns or something, regulators, mount up, right? The men are about to go to war, and something in us rejoices that Nabal's about to get his comeuppance. He's those teenage boys, but here's a problem. David is not being the hero in this story right now. David is not the hero of this story. Abigail is. He has something to prove 
David has not yet heard the teaching of the man who's going to be in his line who will say to turn the other cheek. This is an insult to David's honor. David's not harmed. He's just hurt and he's angry. Matthew 5, 38 and 39, Jesus says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the others also. So Jesus has not yet taught these words, but the the other words were there, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth meant the response should be equal, reciprocal. David has been insulted and he has sins on slaughtering every male in this household. That is not a balanced response. David is totally out of line here. And consider what's at risk right now. We hate the fact that Saul slaughtered everyone in Nob. How are we going to feel about David slaughtering every man in this family? David will be a multi-murderer at this point if he goes through with this, probably making him unfit for the kingship. This is a, this is a real problem. I'm going to kill every male. David is totally out of line here. Everyone agrees. The rabbis agree. Everyone agrees. David is totally out of line here. He is bent on murder because he's been insulted. Isn't that funny how even David can fall into the pattern of the Saul or the Nabal? It's a good reminder, a warning to us. Verse 11, we'll wrap up with this one today. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Do you think they're used to going to Abigail? Do you think, and this is one of their shepherds, do you think they're by this point they're used to going to Abigail? Isn't this fascinating? I suspect for the first 10 years of their marriage, or maybe at least the first year of their marriage, if the servants came to Abigail and was like, hey, your husband, you know, the worthless moron that we can't even talk to, that she'd have been like, how dare you talk about my husband that way? Somewhere along the way, she stopped correcting them, right? Husbands, insert your own application here, right? This is where she's like, yeah, I hear you. How fascinating that a servant boy, a shepherd, can speak this way about his master in front of his master's wife, and his master's wife is like, well, thanks for the heads up. You may live in a family or have grown up in a family where someone had to go around behind someone and say, like, I'm so sorry for how they treated you. I'm so sorry for how rude they were. Hey, you know what? Dad loves you. I know he's, I know he's that way sometimes, but you just need to know he does still love you somehow. This is folly. God forbid, men especially, God forbid that our wives are having to go around behind us and correct things and and solve things and fix things for us. Not because we're imperfect, because we all are, but because we're fools. Short-tempered, unkind, inhospitable, and foolish. And the problem is, Nabal thinks he's right. Nabal probably has a very high opinion of Nabal. This This is a big deal for us to recognize. I think the main message for today and why I'm going to stop here why I wrote it to make it where it would stop at about this point is to ask this question, where are you a fool for you being a fool? Where are we foolish and we don't even know it? Where have we decided we're right and now we're trusting in our own wisdom rather than God's wisdom? We see as we see and we want everybody to see as we see, but the truth is we need to learn to see the way God sees. We need to learn to think the way God thinks. What is that in our lives? It's probably something. So that's going to be the challenge. As you stay in with me, that's what I'm going to ask you to wrestle with the Holy Spirit about today. Is what is the Spirit, if we were to hear, if we were to see, where would the Spirit say, show us, here's where you've been a fool. Here's where you're being foolish. Here's where other people are having to cover for your foolishness, just maybe in order to stay alive. Maybe, maybe we've invested in the wrong kind of wealth. And if you look at your life and realize that's the case, then I would say it's time to confess and repent and ask God to guide you in investing in the right kind of wealth. It's never too late.
Is fame or importance? Is power? Is that what's going to cause us to miss the kingdom of heaven? God forbid. As we have this time where we sing, it is tradition. We do it as traditionally, but it's not merely a tradition. We actually believe the Spirit works on us through the power of His Word. And so our hope is that's happening to you all week as you read God's Word and study God's words all week, all, all during the time that that's happening. And then in a community, we do it on Sunday morning. And there may be some community way. You need to come up here and pray or go over to the corner and pray. There will be people praying with you. Maybe you've been through our welcome home process and you're ready to join this dysfunctional family. And you can come up here and let me know that and we'll uh, recognize that, announce that. However it is that we would say, um, listen to the Spirit, see what the Spirit has for you. Now, let me read to you from Jesus' teaching in Matthew 16. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let, me deny him, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. He will repay. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, the very words of God.